How's it going, folks? How's it going? I'm Brother Matthew, and this is Christian Coffee Time, where we sit down together to study the Word of God. And here we are, another day for another great study. So please grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens, and turn with me. Not to chapter 22. Are we at? Yes, we are at 22. Okay, but we're at 23. One day ahead. Okay, let's back up. We're going to back up to Luke chapter 22. And we're going to take a look at what it says. Going to go verse by verse, point by point. So I hope that you're looking forward to this. So please grab your Bibles, notepads, and pens. Grab your tea, grab your coffee. We're in for a long one today, folks. It's a long one. 71 verses, so we're going to see how how well it goes. We may be taking a, a uh, intermission partway through warm up our coffee and whatnot maybe just for a minute or two so uh yeah we're just gonna work our way through this one today we'll see how long it takes well needs to be done so regardless of how long it takes so i got my sugar pills here too because my sugar gets low because on these long ones sometimes that happens and i got uh i already drank a fair bit of coffee this morning i still got half a cup so i'm good <laughs> all right so here we are so I hope you're looking forward to this. Uh, we're now going to be looking into the trial of Christ. This is what we're going to be uh, uh, working our way into, uh, introducing uh, this aspect of the story. Uh, we're going to be looking at the Last Supper and um, uh, and the, the trial of Christ. So I, I hope that you got some comments, questions, and such regarding this. If you have any comments or whatever regarding the study at hand, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. If it's not related to the study at hand, you please hold that. We want to try to limit our rabbit trailing. As again, we have a fair bit of stuff to look at here. There's a fair bit of information. It's a long, long study, long one here. So, um, again, uh, we're just going to have to buckle down and work our way through it. Uh, won't be so much as diving into the depths as we are kind of just skipping the stone across the surface so all right so in chapter 21 we en ended it here looking at the signs of the times the end of days and a lot of information there quite an informative uh passage um and jesus and en ending it with warnings to ourselves to pay attention to be aware of these things that are coming up, uh, to take heed uh, uh, lest uh, we are caught by these things coming along. We need to be watching and praying and keeping ourselves walking with the Lord. So he finishes this, this message and this warning, telling his disciples in the crowd and telling off the Sadducees and all them. And we see uh, some time has passed and chapter 22, verse 1, the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh, which is called the Passover. Now, why is it called the Passover? Passover what? So, this is directly from Exodus chapter 12, where we see Moses uh, with the uh, freeing Israel from Egypt. And this is regarding the last, uh, the last judgment, the last plague of God upon Egypt, where the angel of death was going to be coming and the firstborn was going to die. Um, and the Lord warned the Israelites uh, that if they were to sacrifice a lamb by the death and the shedding of the blood of a lamb and the anointing of the blood on the doorposts, uh, that the, the angel of death would, 
uh, would pass by them, the, and that the Spirit of God would pass over them, over that house, to protect that house. Um, so, this right here is a gospel pic picture in and of itself, that, that as Jesus says, all those who believe in me shall never die, believest thou this. Um, the great promise of the Spirit of God that would cover us, would indwell us, would seal us, would hold us. That we are held by grace through faith and not of works. It is the work of the Lamb, not our works. It's the blood of the Lamb, not our blood. It's the death of the Lamb, not our death. It's all of the Lamb. It, and uh, because of the death and shedding of blood, the anointing of the blood of the Lamb, we are protected, covered, and the Spirit of the Lord passes over us and holds us. So we see there is a feast was brought up on this as a commemoration. We see the Passover festival, the Passover feast, was the commemoration of this. Now, what is our commemoration? Our, quotation marks, Passover feast. And we see that by the death and the shedding of the blood of the Lamb for the Jews in Egypt, this and the Spirit of the Lord passed over and covered them and protected them, we see the, the communion table, the remembrance table of Christ, in, in a sense, is like our passover meal our passover feast where the by the death and the shedding of the blood and the anointing of the blood of the lamb that we are saved and we see how the lamb of god was given to us so the communion table is just that so it's interesting how we see by the old covenant and the new covenant now the feast of unleavened bread drew nigh which is called the passover and again this is a, a poll from exodus chapter 12 and the chief priests and scribes sought how they might kill him, for they feared the people. Now, they couldn't just outright go and kill Jesus in the street kind of thing like they really wanted to. They wanted to stone him right there, right in front of everybody. But they couldn't because they feared the people, because all the people believed that he was from God. And we talked about this yesterday, how the, the Pharisees and the priests and all them, they flat out knew who Jesus was. And Jesus proved this by the one story of the, uh, of the, of the, uh, the master who owned the, the vineyard and the husbandmen who were looking after the vineyard were killing the servants that the master was sending. And then finally the master sent his only son and, they, and the husbandman said, look, this is the son, this is the heir, let us kill him and the inheritance will be ours. They knew full well, and Jesus, by that story, by that parable, was uh, making them understand that you know who I am. And they were wanting to kill him anyways. Now look what it says, they, they sought how they might kill him. They're going about secretly trying to devise up means and ways how they might destroy Jesus Christ. They might kill him. And so we see here next on Judas Iscariot. Some people struggle with understanding Judas Iscariot's place in all of this. Was Judas Iscariot saved or not? No, he wasn't. Jesus even says, uh, better for him had he never been born, the son of perdition, the son of condemnation. Nobody is beyond the grace of God. But some individuals are able to lend their hands to iniquity more by because of their deliberate hardening of their hearts. See, Judas heard everything the rest of the disciples did. He saw the miracles. He saw the works of Christ. He, he heard the, the declarations. He, he saw the, the proofs and all of this. But he was a thief. 
and he he wore the bag. He carried the bag bag of coins uh, to buy the food and all this stuff. And he was a thief, and he would steal from the bag for himself. He was a thief, and no thief will enter the kingdom of God. And you see, he was a thief, unrepentant. So he didn't he didn't care. He just uh, was looking for an easy living, an easy means of money. That's also why he got mad when. Mary broke the alabaster box of ointment. He pipes up, why, why was this waste done? It should have been sold. He didn't care about the poor. He didn't care about that. He, and he was mad that Mary broke the thing because that was worth a lot. He could have gotten a lot of money. And this waste, but it, all the other disciples, others saw it and understood what Mary was doing and anointing Jesus as a blessing, a blessed, honorable thing respecting Jesus Christ and worshiping him, believing on him. And Judas says it was a waste. So we see no respect, no care, no thought, no conviction, no repentance. He wasn't saved. He wasn't saved. Now, the other proof here that Judas was not saved is verse 3. Then entered Satan into Judas. Now, when you study the word of God, and many charismatics, Pentecostals, and others like that might uh, learn from this as well, that born-again Christians cannot be demonically possessed. You cannot be indwelt by the demonic. They can oppress you, but they can't possess you. To possess, to own, to control, to own, to call the shots of. Now, the enemy can oppress by outward affliction and persecution, suggestions, intrusive thoughts, and those kinds of things, but they cannot own you, control you. Now, we see here, it, Satan entered Judas. Judas Iscariot became demonically possessed by Satan himself. And no saved individual could ever have that happen. We are already indwelt by the Spirit of the living God. Proverbs 8.22 The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way. Where we are indwelt, Ephesians 1.13 Indwelt and sealed by the Spirit of God. And the Lord will not share the same place as the place of devils. Now, Satan entered Judas. You know, there's been a lot of thoughts on that. And I... It amazes me at the, the, the level of hardening of the heart. Where so many people see and hear things that leads them to understanding and they believe the gospel. And, you know, people say, well, if Jesus would just appear to me, if Jesus would just speak to me, if he would just show himself to me, then I would believe. Well, what about Judas? What about Judas? He saw everything, heard everything. He was there at first, at first hand accounts on all these things. And he didn't care. How, how far the hardening of a heart can actually take an individual. Or he would, he would be with an individual for, for, for three years, three years of ministry, going from place to place, seeing everything, hearing everything, the demonic deliverances, demons screaming out that the, uh, uh, the, the, uh, to Jesus, where they're being cast out of individuals. See Jesus calm storms, turn water to wine, heal the sick, raise the dead, claim the names of God, all of this, and still not care. How far a hardened heart will go to even sitting at dinner with Jesus and allow Satan to possess you because you're angry at Jesus and now you're going to betray him. 
some people say well it was it was destined he this is this is the truth no no because then god would be willing that some should perish and we see in the scriptures that god is not willing that any should perish so judas had his opportunity and rejected it he willingly gave himself to be a willing participant in all of this he willingly chose to volunteer to be the betrayer because of his hardened heart state then entered satan into judas surnamed iscariot being uh, being of the number of the twelve and he went his way and communed with the chief priests and captains how he might betray him unto them and they were glad and covenanted to give give uh, to give him money now to sit down and to figure out how to murder jesus so you see he was a thief a hater of god now a blasphemer and now trying to kill god to work with the sons of iniquity to conceive wicked imaginations which you see another thing it says in the scriptures that the that the lord hates those that uh, that uh, uh, make wicked imaginations and they covenanted to give him money to buy jesus now that's a fulfillment of prophecy though in zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 we see the actual prophecy that uh, how the messiah will be betrayed by a friend for 30 pieces of silver is what it says in zechariah chapter 11 verse 12 a fulfillment of prophecy that these things must happen this is how it's going to go this is how it's going to happen and from point from point to point to point we see it fulfilled the word of god being fulfilled the prophecy is fulfilled zechariah eleven twelve that he'll be betrayed with 30 pieces of silver and he promised and saw opportunity to betray him and that he kept this sin in his heart psalms 66 18 he held this iniquity in his heart that he he didn't even doubt it he didn't think well you know i shouldn't do this no i shouldn't do this is wrong no he didn't care he didn't even care he had hardened his heart seared his conscience with a hot iron and hated jesus pretended to be his friend and hated jesus so he waited he waited for an opportunity bided his time with this malice in his heart did jesus not know oh he knew god knows what's in the hearts of men he knows your thoughts he knows your uh your desires he knows your weaknesses your strengths he knows everything about you he knows what you're thinking right now and this is the long suffering of the lord the long suffering of the lord and also the understanding of god how, how these things had to happen then on the same day of unleavened bread, when the Passover must be killed, he sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare us the Passover that we may eat. And it's, uh, I, I was going over this again just this morning, just to familiarize myself with this uh, beforehand and just reading through it. And a thought just came across my mind, something interesting in verse eight that I'd never really noticed before. And, and that is Jesus didn't tell them where at first verse 8 and he sent peter and john saying go and prepare us the passover that we may eat and peter and john are like okay uh 
You see, the Lord didn't tell them where. See, God wants to be in all of our thoughts. He would like to be a part of all of our plans. You see, Peter and John could have gone and found a place. They could have done that. And the Lord would have blessed that because they obeyed him. They went and prepared a place. But you see, even in the even in the little things, things like this, where should I go? What store should I go to? What place should I do? What words should I say? The, the Lord wants you to ask him. He wants to be involved and a part of everything. You see, Peter and John could have very well gone and prepared a place, but instead they said, okay, sure, Jesus, yep, we'll do that. Um, is there anywhere in particular you would like us to go? And that's where Jesus would smile. Because they, they are seeking Jesus as the counselor of this. The one to give them the understanding and the direction in all things. And they said, where, where wilt thou that we prepare? Where do you want us to go and prepare a place? Verse 10. And he said unto them, Behold, when you are entered into the city, there shall a man meet you, bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. How did Jesus know? Just like, how did he know uh, uh, when uh, Nathaniel and Philip were coming, where he, he saw Philip under the tree? How did he, how did he see Philip in another city long way off? Did Jesus have binoculars or a telescope? Nope. How did he see Philip under the tree? He sees all things. He knows all things. How did he know that there would be that, that cult tied up uh, and that people would ask this specific question and he told us that? How did he know that was going to happen? How, how, how did he know that there would be a man carrying a pitcher? And why is that a thing? Well, generally, it was women that did that. And this is different. This is a manservant who would be carrying a pitcher so he would stand out a bit from the crowd. It'd be easier to identify. Behold, you're entered into the city. There shall a man meet you bearing a pitcher of water. Follow him into the house where he entereth in. And you shall say unto the goodman of the house, The master saith unto thee, Where is the guest chamber where I shall eat the Passover with my disciples? And he shall show you a large upper room furnished. There make ready. You see, the thing is, it's not just like a little room that they need. No, this is a place they needed a, a large room. Uh, uh, large enough for all the disciples, for everybody, and all the food, and all the stuff. Now, it would, may have been a little more difficult to find a place. Now, in the culture of Israel, generally homes in different places would have guest chambers, guest rooms, and dining areas uh, that they would lend out and offer to others if someone else needed to stay people on a journey it was it was custom to invite people that uh, travelers whatever to stay over especially for the night and this is this is the custom so it wasn't out of the ordinary to ask a complete stranger if they had a room available for for the night or for a meal or whatever so Peter and John also knew that they also had the added task of trying to find a place big enough for all the disciples for a table big enough and everything. And the Lord already had it all worked out. He already had it all worked out. And they told him that how to find this guy who carrying the pitcher leads you to a place with everything that is sufficient as we need. He will show you a large upper room furnished there make ready. And they went and found as 
as he had said unto them. Exactly. See, this is one of the most blessed things of our Lord is that when he makes a promise, he will fulfill it to the T. He will never fail. It will never be almost like he said or kind of just a generic and you kind of got to kind of try to figure it out, interpret it, and it can kind of fit anything else. No. When God speaks, he speaks clearly, specifically, with details that you can't make a mistake trying to understand what he's saying. What he says is what he means, and a child can understand it. The Lord is plain and clear and simple and to the point, specifically detailed. And they found exactly as he had said unto them. And they made ready the Passover. And when the hour is come, he sat down in the twelve, in the twelve apostles with him. So they all sat down to eat. Now, as we've seen so far throughout the Gospels, everything the Lord has said, everything that the Lord has done, everything that the Old Testament says about the Christ has been fulfilled to a T so far. Even in the betraying, that one, that, that one will lift up his heel against him, his own friend that he broke bread with will betray him. As Psalms 41 verse 9 psalms 41 verse 9 that uh, even my own friend has lifted up his heel against me i broke bread with him he will betray me and we see how he'll betray in zechariah 11 12 for 30 pieces of silver we saw everything how the christ messiah would raise the dead he'd heal the sick he'd heal the brokenhearted open the eyes of the blind heal the lepers and all this all of the prophecies how the, how the Christ Messiah will be born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, be called the mighty God, and Jesus claimed the, the names of God. And Isaiah 53 gives us the, the work of the Christ Messiah, everything, and it's being fulfilled to a T. The word of God is so specific. And the hours come. He sat down and the twelve apostles with him. And he said to them, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. And he's told his disciples multiple times how he'll be betrayed into the hands of wicked men. And how he'll be beaten and mistreated and be put to death. But he'll be raised again to life the third day. He told them multiple times. And for some reason, they're just not getting it. They're just not getting it. Now, how many times do you read through the Bible and you read the same passage and you read it, you see what it says, but nothing really jumps out at you. You read it again, same thing, read it again, same thing. You read it again and all of a sudden it's like your eyes are opened and you get it. You see things you've never seen before in the same passage. It's just like that. Where he told them and told them and told them they don't get it, don't get it, don't get it. And all of a sudden, oh, I get it. We see that happened after he rose from the dead. All Their eyes are open, their understanding was open, and they saw this and they got it. So with this, we see how not to worry that what the Lord wants you to know, he will teach you. He'll teach you as you need to know. You ask him for wisdom and understanding, he will show you. He will show you. And he said to them, With desire, I desire to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I say unto you, I will not any more eat thereof until it be fulfilled in the kingdom of God. 
Luke 5, 36-39. I say this again. And he took the cup and gave thanks, saying, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I say unto you, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God shall come. And he took bread and gave thanks and break it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body which is given, given for you. This do in remembrance of me. Verse 20. Likewise also the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new testament in my blood which is shed for you. The body broken, the blood shed. The bread and the wine. Symbolic. This cup is the New Testament. The blood. The blood. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Anyone can die. Anyone can shed blood. But there's only one who can die, shed his blood, and rise again. There's only one who has power over life and death. There's only one who can grant eternal life. Anyone can be, can be betrayed and tortured, nailed to a cross, shed their blood and die. But nobody can fulfill the prophecies to the T and do all of this exactly like the scripture says, without fail and rise again from the dead. This cup is the New Testament in my blood. That, that in the Old Testament we see they had to sacrifice again and again and again and again and again. But it's not by the blood of bulls and of goats, but by the, by the shedding of blood of, of Christ. But of a one-time death, one-time sacrifice. You see, before, there had to be a continuous sacrifice to cover and cover and cover and cover every year. There'd have to be an atonement made. But Jesus Christ, by one atonement, by one sacrifice, not just covered, covered and took away. Covers and takes away. That there isn't a need for a continual sacrifice, for a continual work, a continual atonement. This blood which is given you, this do in remembrance of me. The communion table, it, uh, the Catholics and many of those of the Orthodox and others like that have corrupted it. And they think that the communion table saves you, that when you eat, eat the bread and drink, and drink the wine, that it'll forgive your sin. No, it is a symbolic representation. It's a symbolic representation only. It's what Christ did. And you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you're saved. And then this is done in remembrance of him. Remembrance of what he did for you. To commemorate, to honor, to love what he's done. And we see over in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We see the Apostle Paul kind of explains this and uh, outlines this. 1 Corinthians 11. Uh, verse 23. For I have received of the Lord that which I also delivered unto you, that the Lord Jesus, the same night in which he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat, this is my body which is broken for you, this do in remembrance of me. After the same manner also he took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood, this do ye as often as ye drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as ye eat this bread and drink this cup, ye do show the Lord's death till he come. To commemorate how the Lord gave himself for us, how he so loved us. It is the, the symbolic commemoration of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave himself. He, for greater love of no man than this, and a man laid down his life for his friends. And that's what the Lord did for us, because he so loved us. 
This cup is the New Testament. We see the Old Testament now. This time has ended. And we see the New Testament, the New Covenant. The Old Covenant and the New Covenant. The New Covenant is through the Lamb of God. Not through uh, the, the blood of bulls and of goats and the shedding of the blood of lambs, but now through the Lamb of God. As John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God which shall take away the sin of the world. This cup is the New Testament, the New Covenant in my blood. The Old Covenant is now ended, and it's now through the covenant of Jesus Christ. So he's telling those and explaining this. Now, how is this New Covenant to be carried out and fulfilled? Well, first, verse 21, But behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me in the table. I've often thought about this. How Judas Iscariot literally indwelt, possessed by Lucifer himself. Lucifer was at the Last Supper. I want you to think about that one just for a moment. Lucifer was there. At this sacred holy thing, Lucifer was there. Well, Satan is able to come right up before the throne of God to accuse us, the accuser of the brethren. To think of the, the audacity and the arrogance and the hate and the pride and the filth that this evil one has. Sat at the table with Jesus and, and was eating of the Last Supper with the disciples, with all of them. It's insane to think of, but this is what happened. And, and Jesus says, Behold, the hand of him that betrayeth me is with me on the table. And truly the Son of Man goeth as it was determined. But woe unto that man by whom he is betrayed. And we see by Psalms 41 verse 9. Let's go take a look at Psalms 41 9. Now... In this, we see Psalms 41, 9. Yea, mine own familiar friend in whom I trusted, which did eat of my bread, hath lifted up his heel against me. Psalms 41, 9. That's a prophecy regarding Judas Iscariot. And they began to inquire among themselves which of them it was that should do this thing. Now, could you imagine sitting at the table with Jesus like this? Sitting at the table with Jesus. You're all sitting around shoulder to shoulder. And you're, all, you're eating the Passover meal together. And then Jesus says, one of you is a betrayer and will betray me. And I will be tortured and killed because of this. Now, you'll note how many times Jesus has told them things that, that are going to happen. And they came to pass just like he said. But in this, he doesn't say who. Not that he didn't know. Jesus knew. As he even says, it is him who I give this sop to. And he takes a piece of bread, dips it in the sauce, and hands it to Judas. Signifying he knows exactly who it is. But the other disciples are so caught up in the moment, they didn't notice and they didn't understand. But could you imagine the fear? Is it me? Is it me? Is it I? Is it I? Master, is it me? Master, is it me? Could you imagine how terrified feeling you would be? Thinking down the road, is something going to happen where... I'm going to be the betrayer? How scared you would be. How scared you would be in this. And they inquired among themselves. Now, this also, I'm going to kind of cheat here and go ahead a little bit. And um, regarding Peter, 
And now we see in Peter where Jesus says, you know, uh, it says to Peter, you're, you're going to did not deny me three times. This also is a part of the mentality of the, of the psyche of Peter because he would be thinking that he was the betrayer because he denied the Lord. And this is also why he would have wept bitterly after he heard the, the rooster crow. And he remembered and Jesus looked at him and he remembered that Jesus had said, you're going to betray me. So he would have thought that he was the betrayer. So you see, see what happens here. So they're all freaking out about this. And this is where Judas also got, got up and went out. And he went to, to uh, get the, uh, the priests and all of them ready to come and arrest him. And so some little time had passed in verse 24. And there was also strife among them, which of them should be accounted the greatest. That in the kingdom of heaven, when they're there, which of them will be kind of the chief of the disciples, the, the, the higher up of the apostles, which of them would be greatest? Uh, Jesus has already talked to them about this kind of thing many a time before. And this is just a fleshy pride thing that's just kind of taken over a bit. And so Jesus again goes to explain this to them, verse 25. And he said unto them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and they that exercise authority upon them are called benefactors. But ye shall not be so. But he that is greatest among you, let him be as the younger, and he that is chief as he that doth serve. Now Jesus showed them an example of this by washing their feet. Where he set aside his, his, his garments and put on a servant's robe, and he got a bowl of water and washed their feet. Now, think about that one just for a moment. How, how would you feel? How would you feel if you're sitting there and Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, God manifested in the flesh, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and all the prophets, the God who spoke all things into existence, is manifested in the flesh, and his name is Jesus, and here he is with a bowl of water wanting to wash your dirty feet. You see, with this, Jesus is also signifying something very important, that feelings are irrelevant. It doesn't matter how you feel, humility and meekness is more important than pride. Humility and meekness and honoring and serving of the Lord is more important than your feelings. It doesn't matter what anyone else says, what anyone else does. It doesn't matter what the circumstances are. Honoring the Lord and meekness and service and humility and love of the brethren is more important. Helping one another is more important that you that you would condescend down. That just as the Lord condescended down to us, as he lowered himself, he lowered himself on purpose to help us understand. He made he made himself and he made all things simple enough. For our little minds to, to, to be able to comprehend what he's trying to get across to us. If God can wash your feet, how much lower could you go? And this is the example. Service, love, honor, humility, meekness. For whether is greater, he that sitteth at meat or he that serveth? Is not he that sitteth at meat 
but I am among you as one that serveth, as he that serveth. Says says that I'm the one that should be sitting, and you should all be serving me and 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 waiting on me. But look, that's what I'm doing for you, doing to you. If I can do this for you, you can do it for others. And we see in um, in Matthew as well with the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus even explaining, whereas the Father forgives you, so you should forgive others. And if you're not going to forgive others, neither will your Heavenly Father forgive you. So we see uh, how it, it, it comes downhill like this as examples. What the Lord has done, we should imitate. This is Christ-likeness. As Christ did, so should we. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptations. And I appoint unto you a kingdom as my Father hath appointed unto me. Now, what does he mean? My temptations. Jesus is sinless, right? A temptation is something that has come up in an attempt to try to tempt you. As Satan tempted Christ in the wilderness. But did Christ sin? No. Can Christ sin? No. Could he ever sin? No. God cannot sin. But he was a man... Uh, one who was tempted in all like passions as we are, but yet without sin. As an example unto us on how to avoid and how to oppose and how to resist. And I point unto you a kingdom, as my Father hath appointed unto me, that ye may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom. It's all of the Lord, his ki kingdom, his table, his food, his service, his word, he says, goes. And to sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And the Lord said, then all of a sudden the Lord turns and he points at Simon Peter. And he says, Simon Peter, behold, Satan hath desired to have you, that he may sift you as wheat. Um. Um. What? What, what do you mean by that? Well, as we see, if we go back in the, in the book of Job. In Job chapter 1, verses 6 to 11, we see here that Job, uh, that Job, uh, his service and love of God, Satan desired to sift Job, to sift, to tempt, to try, to, to see if, if you actually fall apart, if you're actually honest and sincere and zealous about what you say you believe, to be tested, your faith tested. Satan desired to test Job, and now Satan desires to test Peter. Because Peter was one who talked a big talk. He talked a big talk. He was always out front. He was always the most eager. He was the, he was the, the most uh, abrasive, belligerent, the, mo the most uh, aggressive and all this stuff. The one who seemed the most zealous of all the disciples. And now Satan's going to call him on it. You say you love the Lord, you're going to be tested. You say you love the Word of God, that's going to be tested. You say you love to, to go to church and you love to hang around with the brethren, that's going to be tested. You say you love witnessing, that's going to be tested. And Satan's going to try to rip that apart to make you look like a liar. You say you love righteousness and hate sin, he's going to test that. He's going to, he's going to try you and tempt you on that. He's going to sift this. Everything that you say, he's going to test. That's what Satan's like. He calls you on it. it. Satan is going to test you and sift you to see if you're speaking truth or you're just bluffing. 
you're just talking a big talk just to talk a big talk to, to look important try to look all good or are you actually honest about it are you actually true and, and sincere about it the lord says simon simon behold satan hath desired to have you that he may sift you as wheat but i have prayed for thee wait a minute jesus prays who does he pray to i thought jesus was god well you gotta understand what prayer is according to the word of god now prayer is just having a conversation having a conversation with communing with what does the word of god say jesus does for us he's our advocate our mediator intercessor that he pleads for us and he fights for us he fights for us now when he says he prays for that means that in this context My neighbor is snow blowing, so please, please ignore that. I'm sorry about that. I have signs in my window, but oh well. But I have prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. Now, he intercedes and he, he's our advocate. He pleads for us. Now, he knows that's, that, uh, that Satan is going to tempt, but just as God spoke to Satan regarding Job, or Satan said said he, he would he was wanting to test Job to see if he was truly faithful. And the Lord says, Okay, you can go ahead and test him, but you can't take his life. You can't kill him. You can do whatever you want to Job to test him, but you can't take his life. Now, this is interceding, uh, being the advocate, mediator, and the defender and protector of. Now, God is not against a test of faith. And this is where the Lord will not allow thee to be tempted above that which ye are able. That the Lord will actually set limits to your temptations and those things that afflict you. The Lord knows your breaking point, And he will not allow the devil to push you past your breaking point. He will, the Lord will allow you to be pushed right up to the edge of the Red Sea with Egypt barreling down. But he'll make a way through the sea. He'll make a way of escape. He'll make a way of escape. And that's exactly what he means here. He says he's prayed, prayed, prayed for to to be the uh, he's interceded for Peter and and making a way of escape for Peter. I prayed for thee that thy faith fail not. It would seem that his faith did fail because he betrayed the Lord, did he not? He denied the Lord three times, and even on the third time he betrayed the Lord, he denied the Lord with cursing and swearing and oaths. It would seem that he didn't believe. He wasn't a believer. Well, can Christians make mistakes? Yeah. Can Christians do stupid things? Yeah. Can Christians slip up and sometimes say things and do things that they ought not? Yeah. But what do we see? We don't look at so much as the sin and the action. We look for conviction of sin. Did Peter have conviction of sin? Yeah. He wept bitterly and repented. His faith did not fail. In the moment, it would seem that he did. His faith failed. But there, there's the momentary lapse, and then there's the giving up of faith. Peter never gave up the faith. Just he was, Romans 1.16, ashamed and scared because of circumstances and whatnot. People said, well, I, I would never have denied. You weren't there. You didn't see what happened. You weren't fearing for your life. 
these individuals are wanting to to kill jesus and that they hated him with a passion they want to slaughter him now people say well i would go to my death oh you sound a lot like peter peter says i will never betray you i'll, I'll go with you even into death and then in the moment betrayed him you see you can talk a big talk all you want you say well i'll stand up i'll go to jail for my faith and all this stuff pray it never happens because you don't know what you'd actually do in the moment people can have a have a moment of weakness a, a moment a momentary lapse and they can slip up and make mistakes to say and do stupid things think stupid things and commit sin but it's the after effect where is the conviction and the repentance see the lord knows our weaknesses he knows that we that we are we are not able to hold ourselves sinless god knows we're corrupted by sin and we fight our sin all the time we fight our weaknesses we put on brave faces and the lord understands the lord knows and satan tries to shatter these masks that we put on on our faces to hide our true selves this is where the lord intercedes the lord is our advocate our mediator the lord holds us even though we may seem to let go the lord holds us you can't lose your salvation no matter how stupid you are i will be with you always even when you're stupid look what he says but i prayed for thee that thy faith fail not and when thou art converted strengthen thy brethren converted a change repentance where where you come back that doesn't mean that you've fallen away, lost your salvation, you got to be reconverted. No, no, no. This, this is talking about to repent and believe. And when in a moment where you've done something really stupid, really bad, and you wonder, oh, am I even saved? Am I even saved? Lord, forgive me. Lord, forgive me. I'm so sorry. He, he never let you go. He never abandoned you. You never lost your salvation. But there's that renewing of faith. The renewing of faith that's what that's addressing what that's talking about the renewing of faith and what when this is done and this is over peter and all this is over and you've renewed your faith you've come back and and you and, and you're standing properly strengthen thy brethren help others to see how i am with you always and how when they make mistakes they too can be renewed and they can stand fast again Verse 33, and he said, said unto him, Lord, I am ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Boast not thyself of tomorrow, for thou knowest not what a day may bring forth. You see, the devil also knows your strengths and weaknesses. The, de the, the, the devils, the enemy, they, they have watched and listened and observed they they see what's going on they watch your life they watch you and they listen to you they know your strengths they know your weaknesses by observation um, they, they know your mannerisms they know the exact fish lures to use to get you hooked and they know exactly how to catch you they know what you struggle with they know how to tempt you but to boast yourself at when you exalt yourself as the eagle, then shall I bring thee down. You start boasting and you start bragging how you're sinless and you don't sin and, and, and these kinds of things can't happen to you. and You're just like Peter in verse 33. That's where the devil will sift you and he'll break you and he'll show that, that you're a liar and, you're, and you've been deceiving yourselves. Be careful. Verse 34. And Jesus says, verse 34, and he said, I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt, de shalt, thou shalt thrice deny that th 
thou knowest me. To deny that you even know Jesus. To me, that's, that's one of the absolute worst things. How an individual could be brought to a point where you would deny the Lord. You know, it makes me think of Fox's Book of Martyrs. I don't know if you've ever read it. It's a terrifying, terrible read about the martyrs in the first century and whatnot. What what Rome did and how Caesar, how Caesar and all of them slaughtered and killed the Christians. Horrible, horrible things. How they were butchered and slaughtered in ways unimaginable. I can't really go into detail on some of the things that happened to them. I'll just tell you, just look up Fox's Book of Martyrs because, well, YouTube might censor this video if I were to actually go into detail about what happened to some of these people. Brutalities you couldn't even begin to imagine. For the purpose of breaking the Christians to make them recant Christ. That was the purpose. This is what Saul of Tarsus also did. That he would torture the Christians to get them to blaspheme Christ. Now, we can say, well, I, I bear I bear it. You have no idea what your limits are. And that's where the devils will move, will move the torturer, will move this individual to torture you in ways that, uh, because the devils know your limits. And the devils can break you. We are unable to go five minutes without sinning, but we have thought, word, or action. But see, the thing is, even, even in the moment, even in the moment, this is where the Lord will not let us go. See, the Lord knows that, that, uh, that pain and sorrow and the torture and these things, that it's the flesh speaking. It's the flesh speaking because you're speaking just to make the pain stop. And that the Lord understands this. So we see the same thing in verse 34. I tell thee, Peter, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. And big, strong Peter doesn't believe it. Doesn't believe it. Doesn't He doesn't believe that what Christ is saying is exact. That he thinks that he can override what Christ has said. No, I'm not. I won't, I won't betray you. I never will. But what did the Lord say? We've seen so far the, the specifics and the details and all these things. The, the, the word of God continuously holding true. There are so many Christians who, uh, like Peter, think that they can outdo, override, or be stronger than or better than what the word of God says. Verse 35, and he said unto them, When I sent you without purse and script and shoes, lacked ye anything? He's causing the disciples to think back to the beginning of the ministry. Uh, when he, he instructed them and taught them, then he sent them out to be witnesses and evangelists. And he told them, go, go out without purse and script and shoes and anything, and I'll provide it all. Helping them to, to remember something here. When I sent you out and I told you, don't take any of these things, did you actually lack anything? And they said, nothing we didn't lack anything helping them to remember now why why is jesus pulling this up because he knows what's coming down the road and what's going to happen and that he's not going to be with them for a little while and he doesn't want the he doesn't want their faith to fail 
And by remembering the goodness of God, it strengthens your faith, even in a moment when you think you're all alone. You remember what the Lord has done already. What, what he has said, what he has done, what he has promised, what he does do. Do you actually lack anything? No. Has God ever failed you? No. Then he said it to them, but, but now... He that hath a purse, let him take it, and likewise his script. He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. To prepare yourself. To ready yourself. Now, now your schooling and your training is done. It's about graduation time. Now gather all these things that you have learned. Gather all the stuff. Gather yourself up and gather your weapons it's re and ready yourself for the battle. For I say unto you that, that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. This is Isaiah 53. How he'll be betrayed into the hands of wicked men, and they, and they will torture him. They'll take him from, uh, from prison and from judgment. He'll make his uh, death uh, with the wicked, his... his uh, his grave with the rich, that's Joseph of Arimathea's tomb, but his days will be prolonged. Now we see all these things have come to pass. It, it will all happen just like he says. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. Now, I find that kind of interesting. Jesus didn't say for them all to arm themselves. Everyone must have a sword. There, there were... Well, Judas has already left. There's now 11 disciples, and there's only two swords. See, not everybody needs one. But it's also kind of interesting. It's also kind of interesting when we see, when it comes to self-defense, that, that with 11 disciples and two swords, there's more occasions where do nothing. Don't raise up your hand is the answer. Now, the word of God is not against self-defense. But the word of God does say to turn the other cheek. That, there, that in the moment, you need to be careful to listen to the Holy Spirit, not listen to your flesh. Your flesh wants to fight. Your flesh wants to be a Viking barbarian and raise the spear and shield and go scream and charge into battle and wage war against the infidels. That's what the flesh wants to do. The flesh wants to rile up and fight against everybody, but that's the flesh and that's sin and that's not what the Lord wants you to do. Now we do see through the word of God, there have been occasions where the Lord has raised up certain individuals to raise up sword. But that should be the Lord's call and not yours. The Lord does not require everyone to arm themselves. Well, how, how can we know, you know who, who's to be armed then? Let the Lord call the shots. The Lord will tell you what to do. The Lord also did say, He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. And the Lord did say, Speak evil of no man. The Lord did say, Forgive your enemies. Pray for those that despitefully use you. To forgive them. Turn the other cheek. To show meekness and humility. To show love and honor. Even to your enemies. So, how then would you be able to use a sword? Why do you want to use a sword? If you have a desire to want to use the sword and you want to fight, 
that speaks to your spirit that your spirit does not understand the love of God. As Jesus even said to his disciples before, and they, they said, should we call down uh, hellfire upon these individuals over here? And Jesus says, you do not know what spirit you are of. You don't understand what you're saying. And they said, and they said behold, here are two swords. He says, it's enough. You don't need anything more. You don't need anything more than that. And he came out and went, and he was want, as he was wont, to the Mount of Olives, and his disciples also followed him. And when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray, ye, pray that ye enter not into temptation. Lots of temptations, lots of these things are going to come up to you. And, you, and things are going to come down the road, they're going to test and try and trouble you. But be careful. Mind the spirit, not the flesh. What is Christ-likeness? What are the ways of Christ-likeness in all these things? Be mindful. Mindful of your words. Mindful of your actions. Mindful of your ways. What does Christ say? What would Christ want you to do? Not what I feel, I think, I believe, my opinions. The circumstances do not dictate truth. Truth dictates truth. What the Lord says. Even if you're arrested, like Paul and Silas in the prison. Paul and Silas in the prison, where they are arrested and imprisoned, beaten and, and put in the stocks. They sang praises. They didn't hurl curses. Now, as the Lord says in his word, he teaches my hands to war, my fingers to fight. In what manner? To fight what? We should be careful allowing our flesh to dictate doctrine. To be mindful of what Christ says. Jesus said right here, verse 36, He said, He that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Now, what kind of sword is that? That's an actual, literal, metal, sharp sword. He's actually speaking of swords here. That to provide safety for yourself and your family, there is biblical precedent. There is license there. But the thing is, it's up to the Lord how you use it, how you swing it. So, um, okay, so we're just a little over halfway. We're going to take just like a two-minute break intermission here. I hope you don't mind. Uh and because uh, I know there's a long one, we got a whole bunch more stuff we're going to be going through. And uh, so we're just going to do like a little two minute intermission here. Hope you don't mind. And we'll be back and we'll, and we'll continue on. I'm not going to end this. I'm just going to put it kind of on mute here. And uh, you can go get some more coffee or something and uh, get yourself ready. And we'll come back and we'll finish up this chapter. All right. So just two minute intermission.
All right. Now we still got some time here. We'll just give it a second. Just doing a bit of the intermission here because I was waiting for a parcel and I don't want porch pirates stealing it, so I had to go grab it too. Um, okay, so gives time to freshen our coffee, get our notes ready. Okay, if you're ready, we'll continue. How many have we got in here anyways? Three viewers. All right, we got a few people. They've been going for an hour. Okay. Well, we probably got about another hour's worth here. <clears throat> this is a long one. We got 71 verses. Okay, so as you see, uh, the way I'm going through here, um, different than other preachers, I'm not a deep theologian. <laughs> I'm more of an evangelist. Um, I focus on the gospel and the specifics of grace and faith. Uh, I work in the field of apologetics. So what I what I try to do is kind of a surface level um, argument kind of thing. What, what I try to do is see, okay, where else in the Word of God does it kind of talk about this and try to uh, correlate Scripture with Scripture and explaining things in kind of a surface general level. And look, the, the Bible says it and how it proves it. Basic arguments uh, and proofs of scripture. Uh, I try to simplify it. Um, the one term I heard once that I absolutely love is uh, turning meat into milk. As you see, um, new believers or people young in the faith, they need the milk of the word. They need things simply explained. They need to understand it in a, in a very simple, basic understanding. And meat of the word are for those that are matured and... Um, they are able to understand more of the deeper aspects of scripture, deeper doctrines and theology. What I try to do is uh, say, is take a look at what scripture says and turn meat into milk. I try to take the deeper things and simplify them so that anyone can understand it. From children to adults to young in the faith, even old. Um, so I, I try to paint pictures in this. So when we see the life of Christ and what Christ is saying, what Christ is doing here, I try to simplify it to help people to understand it in a very basic uh, basic way, in a simple way. All right, so Jesus says, pray that you enter not in temptation. Now, the, he's also here, as we see in the um, Sermon on the Mount, uh, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Now, God doesn't tempt us with evil. He doesn't tempt us with evil. In him is no darkness, a shadow of turning, and he does not tempt us with evil, but makes a but, but makes a way of escape. So and he says, "Pray the enter non temptation." This is kind of a repeating of what he said, helping them to remember as well the uh, the prayer that he showed his disciples on the mount. Now we call it the Lord's prayer. It's not the Lord's prayer; it's the disciples' prayer. When ye pray, say this: Our Father which art in heaven. When ye pray. And he says, pray the entered on temptation. Again, helping them to, to remember to put all these things, everything that he has shown you, everything he's told you from the beginning to the middle of uh, the, uh, the Lord's Prayer and up to here, everything, to put it all together. All the teachings, all the doctrines. If you love me, keep my commandments, my teachings, my instructions. So he finishes up with the, with the statement, pray that you enter not in temptation. 
also giving them a heads up. We're about to enter into dark territory. There's going to be a lot of uh, uh, trials, a lot of troubles, a lot of, a lot of terrible things that are going to be coming down. And you need to prepare yourself. Now, for us, how would we th apply this to ourselves? Well, when do you pray not to enter temptation? When you're going to be going out to do anything? Even in your own home? Do you ever get tempted at home? What does scripture say? Pray without ceasing. Pray without ceasing and always asking the Lord to help you, to guard you, to strengthen you, to guide you in all things. It doesn't matter what you do and everything that you do, even in eating and drinking, dwell to the glory of God. And as you, in verse 41, and he was withdrawn from them about a, a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed. So, sorry. My bad. I skipped ahead. I didn't do verse 39. I'm sorry. Verse 39. So he finishes up about the swords thing. <laughs> My bad. Verse 39. And he came, and he came, so he finishes up the swords thing and they leave. And it, and he came out and went, and as he was wont to the Mount of Olives. Now, we talked about this before. We got back up. We talked about this before, how how the Lord actually had a favorite place. Kind of shows a bit, of, a bit more of his personality. As we do see, Jesus is God manifested in the flesh. But Jesus is the man God, God man, son of God, God the son. Jesus is 100% human and 100% God without sin. And as such, we do see kind of a, um, a personality quirk. It's rather interesting where Jesus had a favorite place. He had a favorite place, the Mount of Olives. As he was wont, he went there all the time. Why there? Well, some have speculated because of the olives. Well, because he liked olives? That could be an aspect to that, I guess. But we do see throughout the Word of God a heavy emphasis on olive oil. Olive oil is a healing agent. Olive oil is used in prayer. It's used in fasting. It's used in worship. It's used in blessings. It's a very, very important aspect of faith. And olives as well are, an ex are extremely healthy. Olive oil is extremely, extremely healthy. So there's a lot of benefits there. So it's, it's, it's just interesting, I, I find, when you put all these things together, that, that he really enjoyed going uh, and regularly uh, visiting the Mount of Olives. And his disciples followed him. And we went to the place, sent to them, pray that he entered not in temptation. Because you see, trouble is now coming upon them. Because see, Judas is on his way. That's an interesting picture. Now, this is evening. It's now nighttime. It's dark out. He and his disciples are on the Mount of Olives, and they're talking. They're praying, and Jesus is teaching them and instructing them. The disciples can't see it. The disciples cannot see the wolves on their way. As the shepherd is there with his sheep and it's dark time, the sheep don't see the danger. The shepherd sees the danger. The shepherd can see the wolves coming from a, from a ways away. Jesus, our, our great shepherd, is sitting there 
with his disciples and the infinite eyes of God that can see through rock, dirt, and stone. He can see through everything. He sees everything. He knows everything. And those eyes are looking off in the distance. Jesus has a thousand yard stare at this moment and he's watching Judas with all of the chief priests and the soldiers with their swords and clubs and and uh, and torches marching towards them. Judas knows that Jesus loves this place and goes here all the time. So it is a pretty safe bet that this is where he would find Jesus. So he's leading them there to Jesus' favorite place. The enemy knows, the enemy knows in your life, or the Lord tries to lead you. With, for example, we think of the prayer closet. We think uh, think of the church building or places. Are that the devil knows how to try to distract you from these places that try to encourage you the most in faith. You ever wonder why it's Sunday morning, or uh, or when your church's prayer meeting? Ours is on Wednesday nights. Uh, is our prayer meetings? You ever wonder why, especially Sunday mornings, is when you seem to have the most trouble? Things hap happen, things go wrong, things happen more on Sunday mornings than any other day, it would seem. The kids, the cars, the cows all go off, the, all, everything all goes wrong. When you try to sit down with your Bible and you're actually going to have a devotional time and read your Bible and pray and fast and pray, everything goes wrong, everything's to distract you, and, it, and it's the worst time ever. That's when the Judases, that these those soldiers are coming to try to wreck your favorite place, your favorite time. The Lord sees it coming. The Lord knows that that these kinds of things happen, and this is why He also tells us to pray, lest you enter into temptation before you go to church, before you go to prayer meeting, before you go to sit down with your Bible, read and pray. You should start praying first and prepare yourself. Pray that these temptations would not come near you and that it would be easier for you. That's the application there. And he was withdrawn from them. So he tells them to pray lest he enter temptation. Because it's a time of watching and prayer and reading yourself. And Jesus goes apart a little bit about a stone's casting, how far you could throw a stone. And he went that distance and kneeled down and prayed. Now people have trouble with this. Why is Jesus praying? Well, again, to pray is just to hold a conversation, have a conversation. So Jesus is speaking, having a conversation, a discourse with the Father. And Jesus says, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Now, why would he say that? Well, what is the cup that he's referring to? People say, well, it's the torture. No, it's not that. He was ready for that. He says to Pilate, for this purpose I might come. This is his entire purpose of being. What is the cup? Well, when Jesus was on the cross and he cried out, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? He's actually quoting Psalms 22. Psalms 22. Because it's at that moment we see that the sun is darkening. 
the, the sky is dark and it all goes black. This is the moment where the sin is imputed upon the Son and the face of the Father had to look away. This is what bothered Jesus more than anything. Where his communion with the Father would be broken for a moment. That, he, that Jesus is willing to go through this for you. That the Son and the Father, the fellowship would be broken for a moment. That the Father would have to turn his face away from his own Son. If thou be willing to remove this cup from me, that, that, that I wouldn't have to go through this, but nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. That Jesus is willing, that the Godhead is willing, that the Lord is willing to even go through this for you. This is how much he loves you. This is how much he loves you. Not only was he willing to bear the torture, the shame, the blasphemy, the hate, and, uh, and the, the, the vile maliciousness of, of everybody. To have to go through all these things and be nailed to the cross and shamed publicly. And all the things he'd have to bear. He would bear all that and he would even bear a, a, the, the, the broken fellowship of the Father. He would be willing to bear that for you that's how much he loves you not my will but thine be done and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven strengthening him now, how, how, how does it do that how, how do they do that now we see in scripture that there's different angels for different purposes and they have different jobs and offices and so, such and in serving the lord and that the angels are messengers angels are comforters now, how do they comfort? How do they encourage? How do they encourage? By, rem by causing them to remember the things of the Lord. So, for example, these angels here that would come that would strengthen Jesus, they would come coming down and quoting the scriptures. Not because the Lord would forget them. Not because Jesus forgot them or he needed to remember. But the very fact and act of stating the word of God, stating these things, is an encouragement, is a strengthening, drives away the enemy, rejoices the spirit. Jesus is in, is in a moment of heaviness here, and to hear the word of God strengthens and encourages. Like, for example, Jesus is on the cross. Jesus is on the cross. He, he's been shredded and beaten. His bones are visible from the whippings and lashings. His, his flesh is torn open. You can see the bones. His joints are out of place. They tore his beard out of his face. They beat him to a bloody pulp. And he's nailed to the cross. Nailed big spikes through his hands and his feet. He's on the cross, bleeding out. And Jesus quotes something Psalm 22 verse 1 my God my God why hast thou forsaken me why art thou so far from helping me and from the words of my roaring why did Jesus say that 
Well, for number reason number one, he, the reason why he said that was because it was at that moment is when the face of the father had to be turned away from the son because the sin of the world was imputed upon him and the face of God cannot behold sin. So there's that reason. But the reason Jesus quoted Psalm 22 verse 1 was also not for just for the sake of the specific circumstance of what was happening to him, but he quoted this as a dual purpose as a statement because what was happening and number two, the crowd. The Pharisees, the priests and the soldiers and, and, and all the Jews and everyone else that was around. Why? Because all the Jews and the priests and all these people were well familiar with, with the uh, scrolls of David. With the Psalms of David. What is Psalm 22 all about? Psalm 22 verse 1 starts with the, My God, my God, why has thou forsaken me? And when you keep reading down through Psalm 22, you're reading about how many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me, that's the Roman soldiers. They gaped upon me with their mouths as ravening roaring lions when they mock and scoff and slapping, beating Jesus. I, I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted in the midst of my bowels. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaveth to my jaws. And thou hast brought me into the dust of death, for dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. I may tell all my bones, and they look and stare upon me. They part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. The point of Psalm 22 was to get people to understand as well that Jesus is the fulfillment of Psalm 22. Because Psalm 22 is a prophetic psalm of the Christ Messiah being crucified. And Jesus is fulfilling that. So not only is he quoting scripture for his personal circumstance, but also as a dual purpose that the people that in the moment, even in the moment of his heaviness and his and, and, and the sorrow and the weight of the torture and the pain and the agony, he still cares about lost souls. He still cares about them. He still cares about you. And he's wanting to call you and draw you to the truth for you to understand. That he's willing to set aside even his own pain and agony for your salvation. He's willing to bear all these things for you. And look what he says. He says, not my will, but thine be done. What is the will of the Father? John chapter 6. The will of the Father is that you would turn to Christ. The will of the Father is that you believe upon Jesus Christ. And he's willing to fulfill this will of God to bring all eyes to the Lord. And there appeared angels strengthening, encouraging him in this to help him to, to keep on, to stay the course that it's almost done. It's almost over. Let's keep going. Let's keep going. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. As an example to us, when we're in agony, pray even harder. Don't give up. Faint not in prayer. And, and his sweat was as it were as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground now many people seem to think that when jesus was praying in in the garden that that it, he actually swept blood it was blood no 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 you know ha, have you ever been in a moment where you're well as a weightlifter uh when i'm working out i'm sweating like crazy and it's just pouring off 
sweat is just pouring. Have you ever been in a moment where you're working out, you're exercising, or when you're really sick, or you're in pain, or something going on, and you're really straining hard, and you start sweating like crazy? That's what this is talking about. He wasn't bleeding. It, but like how, for example, how blood would pour, his sweat was pouring. The language here, as it were, doesn't say that it was. It's as it were, it's an example, it's a metaphor. As it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping for sorrow. That the disciples are really kind of sad and what well, Jesus said a lot of hard things he said a lot of hard things a lot of distressing things and they're still scared about okay who's the betrayer and what's going on and Jesus talking about being betrayed and killed and and all this stuff and that this it's been a hard day a lot of things have been going on they're in sorrow and and you know when you're when you're cast down you're sorrowful you get really tired you just want to rest you just want to go have a nap and Jesus says when you're when you're sorrowful and you're heavy, you should be praying. You should never go to bed sorrowful. Never go to bed angry. And Jesus, verse 46, and he says to them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. The temptation of just allowing the heavinesses to control you. The temptation of staying under the cloud of depression. Like Eeyore with the black cloud, oh, woe is me. Never allow that to happen. Pray, lest you enter into temptation. And while he yet spake, a temptation came. A temptation came. A temptation of fear. Fear. Because in a moment of heaviness and depression, you're worried about the outcomes. You're worried about what's going to go on. You're worried about what's going to happen. Fear is a great temptation. Then you start nail biting. Oh, what's going to happen? What's going to happen? You know, this could happen. This could happen. You start playing the metaphorical games. Well, if this happened, then this can happen. You start playing, playing all different kinds of hypotheticals and all different kinds of things. You start playing the psychic game of trying to foretell the future because bad thing happened here. Now this is going to happen. The devils start running in your mind. They start running in your mind. And while he yet spake, behold, uh, behold, a multitude. Can someone tell me, can someone tell me how much is a multitude? How many people are in a multitude? Can you tell me? What does the word multitude mean? It's a great amount that you can't really number it. You can't really number it. A multitude. And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them. Judas led the multitude. Now, this is quite an interesting picture, and there's a number of different uh, examples that we could go by this, uh, different applications. We see, for example, uh, we see the gathering demoniac had a multitude of devils inside of him. 
we see Judas led a multitude. And we see that the enemy can bring a multitude of temptations and troubles upon us. Multitudes of people followed Jesus at one point, and then they all left. John chapter 6, we see they all left except the 12. And then Judas leads a multitude. Now, truth is not always in the multitude. As we see many a time throughout Scripture, truth was not in the multitude. And all because a, a so-called preacher, like Joel Osteen, for example, has a multitude of followers. Doesn't mean the truth. Joel Osteen's a Judas. Kenneth Copeland's a Judas. John Hagee's a Judas. Joyce Myers is a Judas. They have multitudes of people that march after Christ to betray him. They preach false Jesus. They preach false gospels. But Jesus says, pray lest you enter into temptation. The temptation of what? Fearing the multitude, joining the multitude, allowing the multitude to run you over, to stand your ground, to resist the devil that he may flee, to resist fear, to resist panic, to resist doubt, to resist temptation, to resist depression, resist these things that would try to harm your faith. And while he yet spake, behold, a multitude... And he that was called Judas, one of the twelve, went before them and drew near unto Jesus to kiss him. You know, I've often thought about that. Now, this is a cultural thing that the the, the greeting kiss, or they where you kiss each other on the cheek thing. It was, it's a cultural thing that that they did here. Now, I've often thought about this. Why? And as Jesus says in verse 48, when Jesus says, Judas, betrayest thou the Son of Man with a kiss? Why did Judas do that? Why didn't he just go up and greet his master? Why didn't he just shake Jesus' hand? Why didn't he go up and just put his hand on Jesus' shoulder? Or, or whatever. Why did Judas Greet Jesus with a kiss. Why a kiss? Well, we do we do see in the other Gospels that Judas had told the people that, you know, Jesus is the one whom I kiss. Oh, wait, wait a minute. Well, hold up. That brings up another question. What, why did Judas have to tell all the people this to, uh, and pointing out Jesus did they not know well see this is Isaiah 53 this is Isaiah 53 what does it say well if I could turn there Isaiah 53 verse 2 for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground he hath no form nor comeliness and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Now, contrary to the common thought, 
Jesus was not some Amber Crombie and Finch model, uh, white bo white boy looking or whatever sharp featured looking kind of character with long hair with bright white clothes with a big blue sash thing or whatever. That that's not a thing. Jesus looked like the common everyday John Smith type individual. Jesus had no outstanding features. He had the kind of appearance, kind of look, where he could blend into a crowd at the drop of a hat. He was so bland, general looking, you could easily forget him. You had to follow him to keep him in, in your eyesight. Now you could lose him easily. That's also the reason why Judas pointed out, because Judas remembered what Jesus looked like, and the, these people did not. Judas had hung out with Jesus for three years, knew how Jesus walked, he knew how Jesus talked, he knew what Jesus looked like, and still wasn't saved himself. And he was leading, and, and the blind leading the blind... They both fall into the ditch. The blind leading the blind now, who don't even know anything about Jesus, Judas is now bringing them a false representation of Jesus. Judas is Jesus. Judas is Jesus is not God. Judas is Jesus that Judas believed. Even though Jesus is God, Judas did not believe that Jesus is God. Judas did not believe that Jesus is the Christ Messiah. Judas did not understand the scriptures. Judas did not understand the teachings and the miracles and all these things that Jesus had brought forth. That according to the image of Judas's mind, he had changed the glory of God into a corruptible thing. He had suppressed the truth in unrighteousness. And professing himself to be wise, he became a fool and changed the glory of God into something else that Judas was bringing the people to someone else other than the Christ Messiah he had deceived and lied and manipulated and, and aided and abetted the criminal changing of the very point of Christ also we see one other thing here the kiss I thought about this. Where in the word of God, where else in the word of God can we find this? Something that would help explain the Judas kiss. The Judas kiss is Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7. Verses 21 to 23. Not every one that saith unto me, Lord, Lord, shall enter to the kingdom of heaven, but he that doeth the will of my Father which is in heaven. Many will say unto me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in thy name? Did not Judas go with the disciples and witness and testify of Christ? Yeah, he did. Have we not prophesied in thy name? And in thy name have cast out devils. Did not Judas go with the disciples and cast out devils in the name of Jesus? Yes, he did. And in thy name have cast the devils, and in thy name done many wonderful works. Did not Judas go with the disciples and do many wonderful works in the name of Jesus during the three years of ministry of Christ? Yes, he did. 
And then will I profess unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. And Judas is working iniquity. The Judas kiss is to profess Christ and not actually be saved. You see, the, the many here that are crying, Lord, Lord, are uh, they are professing their, their works and righteous works and law-keeping. Nowhere do they, do they say, have we not believed in thy name? They were depending on their works and religiosity to save them, like Catholicism and every other cult that's out there, teaching a works-based system of salvation, and not salvation by grace through faith by belief alone. Judas did not believe in Jesus. Judas wanted the benefits of Jesus without believing in Jesus. Judas wanted to carry the bag. He wanted the money. He wanted the comfy life. He wanted to have a, a good life where, where he was adored by people, but he didn't want to believe in Jesus. The Judas kiss is to profess that you know Christ and not actually believe in him. Where you go and kiss the face of Jesus, but he says, I don't know you. You're betraying Christ. You're betraying the crowd, betraying people. That's the Judas kiss. Judas, betrayest thou the son of man with a kiss? And look look at Jesus here. He doesn't push Judas away. He doesn't hit Judas or curse Judas. He says, why are you betraying me? Why did you betray me? You see, the Lord is not willing that any should perish, and it grieves the Lord, it sorrows the Lord when people reject him. Now, I, now, if I was a betting man, I would bet you the eyes of Jesus were teary here. We see the fulfillment of the hate of Judas. The fulfillment of the hate of Judas. Judas had hardened his heart. And Judas had willingly rejected what Jesus offered. Judas cursed himself by resisting the conviction of the Holy Spirit of God. Judas saw, heard, understood. He had witnessed all these things and rejected it. He rejected it. And thus, he was sifted by Satan. You see, Peter was sifted by the devil. And Peter was convicted and Peter repented. Judas was sifted by Satan and was taken over. The Judas kiss. Verse 49. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Now, we were talking about swords earlier. Now, is there a point where swords would be allowed? See, they had swords on them. They had two swords. Look, here are two swords, Lord. And Jesus says, that's enough. Now we know by the following passage, Peter actually had one of the swords. And one of the other disciples had one of the other swords. And they were surrounding Jesus. Now, there's also one other added aspect here in regards to self-defense. In regards to using a sword. You see, the disciples did not understand what needed to be done, what needed to be fulfilled. 
You see, could the disciples have actually stopped Judas and the crowd from taking Jesus and they, they could surround Jesus and pull up their swords and, and, and make an escape and save Jesus and take him away somewhere else? Could they have stopped the whole thing? No. No. As Jesus said, for this purpose am I come. It, it doesn't matter how many swords you have. It doesn't matter how strong you are, how big of a voice you have. It doesn't matter how much notoriety you have, how big of a platform, how many people follow you, whatever else. It doesn't matter, doesn't matter, doesn't matter. You cannot stop the fulfillment of the prophecies of Scripture. Like, for example, you cannot stop the freight train of the corruption of the end of days. Offenses will come. The great falling away will come. The, the, the debauchery and the abomination and the corruption and the sin and the violence and the wickedness and the evil and the darkness that is to come. The Antichrist will be revealed. These things will come to pass. The churches will be fought against and hated and oppressed and shut down. Christians will be oppressed and are imprisoned and, and hated and all the rest of it. It will happen and you can't stop it. You cannot make things go back the way they were. It will continue on and you can't stop it. There are some things that the sword cannot do. The sword cannot help. You cannot stop the end of days from happening. You cannot stop the trial of Christ. You can't stop it. So this is also why it's so important to pray about things first. Because how do you know what's happening isn't supposed to happen? This is why fasting and prayer and holding yourself to the Lord and the Lord will guide you and teach you what needs to be done. That if a sword is required, he'll tell you. If it's not required, he'll tell you. You don't act upon your own feelings, upon your own, your own desires, which we see happen. And when they were, they were about him, saw what would follow, they said unto him, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? They were afraid, and now their flesh is taking over the temptation of listening to your flesh. The temptation of acting upon your flesh's desires. Is why Jesus also told them to, to, to watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. The temptation of allowing your flesh to take over and control you. Verse 50, and one of them, which would be Peter, one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. Peter, not listening to anything, impulsive Peter, rises up, pulls out his sword, rushes forward, swings his sword, and cuts off the right ear. It came that close. Sliced off the right ear of one of the servants of the high priest. Now that would have caused a big commotion. Big commotion, everything else. There'd be screaming and blood. And, and we see Peter would be threatening them with the sword and all this stuff. And Jesus has to, has to bellow something out here to, to stop everything. Jesus tells Peter, stop, put up your sword. He who lives by the sword shall die by the sword. Meaning, if you keep going, you're going to die. Put your sword away. Peter would be kind of startled and stunned by this. Jesus doesn't want Peter to fight. And Peter just kind of, okay, puts his sword away. Jesus calms everybody down with this. 
We see the supernatural hand of God even in this moment. And in this moment of betrayal, in this moment of blood and violence and everything, and this whole multitude which murderously hated Jesus, this servant, this servant of the priest which hated Jesus, standing there screaming, holding his bloody head, his ear cut off, Jesus picked up the guy's severed ear. Verse 51, this is John chapter 18, verses 10 to 11, in case you're wondering. And Jesus reattaches the guy's severed ear and heals him. The guy who came to arrest Jesus, one of the people who hated him, Jesus healed him. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. The goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance. Well, the, those who oppose the Lord, the Lord can show them goodness to get them to be convicted, to get them to start to be confounded with their own selves, to doubt their own unbelief. That in the moment of goodness, in a moment of gentleness and tenderness, this servant of the high priest that saw stand there and sees Jesus walking towards him, he was taught to hate Jesus. He was told to be malicious to Jesus, to curse Jesus. And here comes Jesus walking forward, stopping his own disciples, walking forward. Benza picks up the guy's severed ear, holds it up, and reattaches his ear to the side of his head. He's healed. It's it's fine. It's it's not bleeding. It's not cut anymore. What would be going through that guy's head? What would be going through his mind? Perhaps everything that I've been told about Jesus is wrong. Perhaps what we're doing is wrong. Perhaps maybe Jesus is who he says he is. Because Jesus is different. He's different. Jesus is not malicious. Jesus is not violent. Jesus shows mercy. Jesus shows grace. Jesus shows forgiveness even to those who are coming to betray him and mistreat him and hate him. Show mercy, not violence. Show grace, not hardship. And Jesus said, Suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders which were come to him, Be ye come out as against a thief with swords and staves. Well, what are you doing? Jesus, even in that moment, just, 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 just has to. Just turns to all the multitudes and says, What are you doing? You're coming at me with swords and staves and torches like you're coming to hunt down a thief. Do you have no idea who I am? You have no idea what I do? Have you not heard me? As Jesus says in verse 50, when I was daily, daily, every day with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this this is your hour and the, and the power of darkness. You saw what I'm like. You heard what I'm like. You know what I'm about. Why are you mistreating me? You know, that brings up the question. That brings up an interesting question. You know, I've done a lot of study in other world religions. I know a bit 
about the different gods and goddesses of different religions. Some of those other deities, so-called deities, are absolute heinous monsters. Absolutely disgusting, disgusting, debaucherous, evil, wicked, murderous, uh, adulterous, violent, drunkard, thieving, bloody monsters. You know what's interesting? Only the name of Jesus and the God of the Bible are used as cuss words in the entire world. In the entire world, you will never see anywhere else any other deity name used as cuss words. Only the name of Jesus and the mention of the God of the Bible. You know, I've brought that up specifically when I've been debating and witnessing and evangelizing certain people. You know, that actually makes people really think. They've never realized that before. You know, like, for example, the Hindu gods, the evil, violent, murderous, genocidal, debaucherous Hindu gods. They're not used as cuss words. Not the Norse gods, which are which are black magic, witchcraft using murderous, drunkard, filthy, genocidal maniacs. They're not used as cuss words or the Muslim god. I won't go into details on that one, but you know what I'm talking about. He's not used as a cuss word. You don't stub your toe and scream, Oh, Allah. You scream the name of God. You scream the name of Jesus. Why is that? What did Jesus ever do to deserve the hate and maliciousness that the world throws on him? What did he ever do that was wrong? Can you point out one thing, just one, just one, one thing that Jesus ever did that was either in word, action, deed, anything that he ever did that was wrong? One thing. Why do you hate him? Why do you curse him? Why do you oppose him? Why do you hate the believers of him? Well, because look at people who believe in Jesus. Look at the things they do. You know, it's, I find that quite interesting. As one, one preacher pointed out, the world will only use the worst examples of, Christ, of Christians uh, as proof that Jesus is bad. People that don't follow the teachings of Jesus, the people who say they believe in Jesus, but don't follow the teachings of Jesus as the evidence that Jesus is bad. Yeah, it doesn't make any sense. But daily was I with you in the temple. The word of God is ever before uh, the faces and the eyes of the world. They they know who Jesus is. They know what he's about. Yet they curse him anyways. And it's only when they're in the strength of darkness, the strength of their own position of darkness and the safety of themselves is when they try to take action against Jesus. Now, I, I just want to pause here for a, sec, for a second. I want to go over to John chapter 18. I want to point out something interesting that also happened. That this to kind of add to this. When they when Judas and the multitude were coming up, right? 
when the multitude of them, the swords and staves, and they're marching, and the soldiers and the torches, like they're coming up against like a, like an angry murderous troll or something is like what they're treating Jesus, and they're coming up and they march up and they all kind of flood in and they surround Jesus and they're standing there with their torches. Jesus standing there all calm. In John chapter 18, verse 4, Jesus, know, knowing all things, it says, and Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that should come upon him, went forth. He, Jesus stepped forward from his disciples to meet the crowd, to meet the, this multitude here. And Jesus says, whom seek ye? Who are you looking for? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus says to the multitude, I am. And Judas also which betrayed him stood with them. And as soon as he said unto them, I am, they all fell backwards. Now, could you imagine this just for a moment? Use your sanctified imagination. Okay, you're one of the disciples. You're standing behind Jesus. Jesus stepped forward to meet this multitude. And Jesus says, who are you seeking? And they all shout, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And then all of a sudden they go quiet and Jesus says, I am. And they all, the whole multitude just falls backwards to the ground. This happened not once, but twice. This happened twice. They got back up. Jesus says, who are you looking for? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am. And they fell backwards again. Now, don't you think that that would start getting you to wonder that maybe, maybe there's something to this guy? You know, the, 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 the point of this is the hardness of the heart. The hardness of the heart. How far an individual can go with a hardened heart. The extent of unbelief. Of apathy and apostasy. How far the devil will go to, to get you to get away from Christ. Now, people say, well, I'd never forget. I'd never forget. And... All kinds of things. Well, you know, people also put a lot of stock in experiences. Do you remember in the Old Testament when Israel was uh, enslaved by Egypt? And along comes Moses and Aaron, and they go up before Pharaoh, and we see the staff turned to snake, and then the plagues on Egypt, and all these things, and the flies, and the lice, and the frogs, and the water turned to blood, and the hail falling as fire, and all the rest of it. Israel saw all of that. They saw all of the miracles that, that God did against Egypt. And then when Israel was finally freed, from Egypt and Moses started leading them out in the wilderness God himself manifested in front of all of Israel as the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night and the actual visible tangible appearance manifestation of Almighty God himself led them through the wilderness to the Red Sea 
And then God parted the sea for them. And they went through on dry land. Then God closed the sea up on Egypt again, led them to Mount Sinai. He's, they saw, heard all of this. Then they finally got to Sinai. Then they actually heard the audible voice of God speaking from the mountain. And the mountain shook when God would speak. And fire went forth as God spoke. And they were so terrified that they'd rather Moses go talk to God. God not talk to them because they're afraid they're going to die. They saw and heard all of that and then made a golden calf. If you're putting your faith, but you're putting stock the stock of your faith upon your experiences, you're no better than those Israelites. Throughout the Word of God, we also see the book of Judges, the circle of apostasy. How all the people on fire for the Lord, seeing and hearing the miracles of God by, uh, through the hands of the prophets and all of this, um, how they just slowly get cool and cool and cold and cold and falling in sin and falling away from the Lord and apostatizing and falling into great sin and darkness and idol worship and sacrificing their children to false gods. And, 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 all this, and then the enemy comes as the judgment upon them because of, of their apostasy and they're, and they're under the enslavement and they're fighting and they've realized their sin and they, they repent and they call upon the Lord and the Lord sends a deliverer who frees them and then they're back on fire for the Lord seeing and hearing all these things and it just happens again and again and again and again all the way through. We see in the New Testament uh, where that uh, Peter and Paul and all the others are going and founding churches, working great miracles, signs and wonders, healing the sick and casting out devils, doing wonderful things and showing the people the mighty power of God. And then the church of Corinth falls into abomination and fornication and adultery. And we see the, the seven churches in Revelation being uh, rebuked by the Lord and being warned that their candles that be removed and all the rest of it. How can people do that? It just it just amazes me it just amazes me how strong the flesh is it amazes me the extent that the enemy will go to try to get you to fall away not lose your salvation because you can't lose your salvation but to ruin your faith so you can't you be used by god to make you doubt the word of god to make you doubt the promises of god to make you become apathetic to the word of god the extent all this multitude, this multitude that followed Judas out to arrest Jesus, they saw the miracles that Jesus did. They, they heard it all, saw it all, witnessed it all, and now they're coming up against him. The, uh, many of this multitude were there and saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead. They, uh, many of them were there at the beginning when he turned water to wine. Many of them were there when he fed the thousands. Not once, but twice he did that. He fed, he fed 5,000, then he fed 7,000. They saw him heal the sick, raise the dead, cast out devils, heal the blind, heal the deaf, heal the mute, and the lepers, and heal the lame. They saw and heard it all. They also never, ever saw or heard him ever do anything wrong. 
He never said anything wrong. He never did anything wrong. How far a hardened heart will go. That's what hits me most and what scares me. It scares me. Because nobody is beyond falling this way. Nobody is beyond falling away. Nobody is beyond apathy. Oh, you can be on fire for the Lord today, but what about tomorrow? What about the next day? What about when the fire of revival cools off? It can happen to anyone. It happens to preachers. It happens to pastors. It happens to missionaries. It happens to evangelists. It happens to many, many, many a person. When Satan desires to sift you like wheat, will you fall away? Or like Job. Oh, you may go through a hard time. You may be depressed and angry and all the rest of it, like Job was. But he didn't deny the Lord. It says, though he slay me, yet will I trust in him. This multitude. Even coming up against Jesus. And then something strangely supernatural takes place. Jesus standing there. Claiming to be the I am of God. And the whole multitude just falls over backwards. I don't know about you. But I would, I would run for the hills. But instead of thinking. Maybe we're wrong. They all get back up and march at Jesus again. We point a finger and say, oh, look at these guys. These guys are dumb. But don't we do the same thing? Don't we do the same thing? We betray Jesus with our sin. We don't think anyone's looking in the stuff we look on our phones. We, we watch for entertainment, our movies and TV shows, and entertainment, our music, our attitudes, our, our sins behind closed doors where no one else is looking or out hanging with friends or whatever else. Um, the things that we do, we think no one's looking. We betray Jesus with a kiss and we march against the truth of Christ like this crowd. And that's what Jesus is saying about pray and, and watch and pray lest you fall into temptation. Watch what you're doing and pray that these kinds of things don't happen to you. Are you truly a disciple or are you a Judas? Do you kiss Jesus as Lord? Or are you kissing him with a Judas kiss? You come out as against a thief with swords and staves. When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. Then they took him. The one who'd done no wrong. They took those hands of Jesus. The hands that healed the lame. The hands that fed the thousands. The gentle hands that laid upon the face of the blind man. The hands which raised the dead healed the sick. The hands which loved and pleaded. They took these hands and chained them up. They put, them, put the hands of Jesus in shackles. And doesn't the world do that today? 
we're seeing it more and more in our western culture and here in canada we're seeing it more and more they're they're arresting and shackling the preachers shackling the the evangelists and missionaries they're chaining up the churches opposing christ opposing the gospel of christ and opposing the word of god here in canada they literally just passed as law law here in canada now you're not allowed to preach preach from the bible anything that says anything negative about homosexuality it's now canadian law was passed by canadian parliament just this past week shackling the truth of god that's psalms 2 the the kings of the earth set themselves together against the lord and against the lord's anointed and saying let us cast off their bands asunder from us they shackled Jesus and they took him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house and Peter followed afar off and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall and were set down together Peter sat down among them Peter comes in he's following from a distance follows from a distance to see what's going to happen is one he's curious what's going to happen how's this going to play out his mind is racing and he's also scared because he doesn't want to be caught when hauled up and potentially killed and we see fear is starting to take peter he's trying to blend in with the crowd blend in with other people and he's over by a fire where other people are and a certain maid beheld him as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said this man was also with him and he denied him, saying, Woman, I know I'm not. A maid. A little girl. Peter, where's the fire that you had in the garden where you pulled out a sword and attacked the servants? Um, well, you're trying to defend Jesus. You're trying to defend Jesus one moment, and now a little girl is making you run. how how is that any different than when you're in church and you're all bold for christ and you raise the hand you shout amen and the moment you go out in public you're suddenly terrified of speaking of jesus in public and he denied him saying woman i know him not and after a little while another saw him and said thou art also of them and peter said man i am not I see him denying again to men and women denying the Lord and then we see how far Peter Peter will go here with his fear when we pair it with the other Gospels we get a bit more of a full picture the third time the third time when Peter denied the Lord it was under certain odd circumstances because the kin the family The, the the brother of the servant who peter cut his ear off uh, you know you kind of can't miss a face uh and those kinds of circumstances but the, the servants of the priests were there the brother of the servant who had his ear chopped off was there he saw peter pull out his sword and swing the sword and chop off the ear of his kin this same man who saw peter do this to his kindred is the guy who accused peter the third time and about the space of an hour 
after another confidently affirmed, saying, Of a truth, this fellow also was with him, for he is a Galilean. And Peter, now terrified, because he's been positively identified. Positively identified. Curses and swears with oaths denying Christ. Peter says, Man, I know not what thou sayest, and immediately while yet spake the cock crew, and the Lord turned and looked upon Peter. How you can be so close to Christ and yet so afraid. You can talk a big talk about faith. Oh, you have all faith and you serve the Lord and you pray and you read your Bible, go to church and you do all the stuff. You're so close to the Lord. The Lord is so close to you in your home and you walk so close with Christ. But yet so far when you're in public. You're betraying the Lord. You betray the Lord. And you're no different than Peter right here. When you say you love the Lord and you serve the Lord and you walk with the Lord, but you refuse to speak of him in public. You're no different than Peter denying the Lord. Jesus looks at you. Looks at you with those eyes. Those eyes that look upon you and your hardships, the hands that hold you, that you're looking over. You've just shackled the hands of Jesus with your denying of him. You have just shackled Jesus and silenced Jesus and denied Jesus. You're no better than the multitude in Peter in that moment when you refuse to stand for him in public. When you refuse to hand out the track, when you refuse to witness, when you refuse to speak up, you're no different than the crowd and no different than Peter. Tell me I'm wrong. Tell me I'm wrong. Jesus looks upon Peter. Jesus looks upon us. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord. And in that moment, in that moment where we refuse to witness, that moment passes and all of a sudden something happens. Something happens. A thought comes across our head. Oh, we should have spoken up. We should have given them a track. We should have, we should have done, should have done, should have done. But it's too late. That's the eyes of the Lord looking upon us. Like how the Lord looked upon Peter. And Peter remembers the word of the Lord, how he had said unto him, Before the cock crow, thou shalt deny me thrice. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. He wept bitterly. Now, it's interesting when you look at the rest of the Gospels and you pair it all together and you look at the look at the book of Acts and you see what happened to Peter after this. Peter became a different man. Peter stopped being belligerent and impulsive. He became a bit more subdued, a bit more cautious and careful with his words and his actions. We we see the impulsivity is gone. And we see the, uh, the brashness of Peter is gone. 
and now he's not afraid to speak up. And we see later on, he, he stood for the Lord to the point of his death. He, he never denied the Lord again. He wept, but it was, the, it was the weeping, it was the crying and the sorrow of repentance. It was the sorrow of godly repentance, godly sorrow worketh, uh, leadeth thee to repentance. Not the repentance of Esau, which I hated, as God said, where even though he sought it with tears, the Lord hated it. Because Esau was not sincere in his sorrow. He was not sincerely repentant. He was only sorry for the, for the trouble it caused. He was not sorry for his sin. Peter was sorry for his sin and wept bitterly. And we see the Lord forgave him. Later on, we see the Lord forgave him. The Lord showed it and proved to him that he was forgiven. Peter went up, went up and wept bitterly. Now you may weep and sor sorrow for, for missing opportunities, and it may trouble you and bother you that you don't witness. But this sorrow that you have, is it the sorrow of Esau or the sorrow of Peter? Are you going to actually change and change this and, and do something about this and become active about the Lord? Or is it going to be the, uh, the sorrow of Esau and God is going to despise it because you're not sincere? Don't actually mean it. You only have faith when, when you're in safety. You only speak for the Lord when you're around brethren. You only stand for the Lord when it's safe. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. Then we see something else. Verse 63. And the men that held Jesus. You know, there's a part of me, to be honest, there's a part of me that gets really, 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 really angry with this passage. <laughs> it's just, it's just, it's me. My old, uh, uh, just my old nature. It's just me. It's just this, what happens next? I just... It amazes me at the control that Jesus had. And, and it also makes me think of something else. The angels. You know, the angels that worship God, that stand round about the throne, the cherubims that are the guardians of God's holiness, the seraphims and the Ophanim and Michael the archangel and the army of heaven and Gabriel, the messengers and the giant angels, the proclaimers and all the rest of them. There must have been quite an incredible power of God at work here holding back the host of heaven because the men that held Jesus mocked him and smote him could you imagine that and when they had blindfolded Jesus they blindfolded him and then smacked him across the face and asked him, saying, prophesy, prophesy, who is it that smote you? And many, many other things blasphemously spake they against him. Could you imagine the reaction of the angels? The cherubims, who are the bodyguards, the guardians of God's holiness, with the big flaming swords of Michael the archangel, with the army of heaven, said that with every smack upon the face of God I honestly believe the angels 
flinched and cringed and reacted. That the father, his hand, be, stay, hold, hold. Michael, put your sword back. Hold. Every smack, the angels be pulling their swords out, ready to, to rush down. That I see that. Now, that's just my opinion. That's just my, my opinion, but I see that. Now, the other point I want to bring into this is just as Isaiah 53, Isaiah 53, verse 7, like a lamb before her shears is dumb, so opened he not his mouth. He never said a word. They, they blindfolded him and slapped him and slapped him and slapped him and mocking him and blaspheming and blaspheming and blaspheming and smacking and hitting him, mocking him. He never said a word. He never said a word. No sword was pulled. No host of heaven came down and crushed them to dust, which they could have done. It was allowed to happen. I'm guilty of that. So are you. You and I did that to him. Our sins, when we were sinners, when we were unsaved, we mocked him. We buffeted him. We said many horrible things against him and twisted his word and denied him and all the rest. It was our sins that did this to him. My sins and your sins were a slap against the face of God. All of his goodness and his goodness and his mercy and his grace that he's bestowing upon us and his drawing and convicting, we just spit in his face and slap him back. Verse 66, and as soon as it was day, the elders of the people and the chief priests and the scribes came together and led him into their council saying, art thou the Christ? Okay, after you've beaten him, now you're asking if he's the Christ and you didn't ask him before you beat him? Okay, but okay, now here's the thing. We know who Jesus is. They knew who Jesus was. You see, it's one thing to mock Jesus like that in ignorance where you don't know. And it's yet another thing to mock Jesus and despitefully entreat him knowing full well who he is. Now, I've said it before and I'll say it again. I hope with all the hope of heaven that there are pillars in the throne room of God that I can hide behind when it's these people's turn. Ananias and Caiaphas and these others who beat Jesus and mocked him and blasphemed him and slapped him and spit in his face. Imagine them standing before Jesus on judgment day. 
the man that you spit on, you spit in his face, is now sitting on the throne. You slapped the face of God literally. You blindfolded him and slapped him and mocked him and, and, and mistreated him. You were malicious to him and there, there he is sitting on the throne. Now as the judge. Now it's your turn. Can you imagine the judgment that they're going to receive? I, I, I hope there's a place that I can hide. I don't want to be around that. I don't want to I don't want to be there. So the high priest demands something of Jesus. The high priest says, "Art thou the Christ?" Now, who is what is the Christ? That word, the high priest used that word, Christ. Now, the high priest knew full well what that signified who and what the Christ is. The Christ is the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised one, the mighty God. Almighty God, come down. And the high priest is, is asking, are you God? Are you God in the flesh? Is this who you are? High priest says, art thou the Christ? Tell us. Jesus still in shackles jesus standing there with a black eye a bloody nose bruised face probably got the big red handprint right across his face right there stand there beaten beaten mistreated bloodied black-eyed shackled up dragged before the high priest and now they're saying are you god Jesus answers and he says to them if I tell you you will not believe and if I ask anything of you if I ask and if I also ask you you will not answer me nor let me go what does it matter if I tell you you don't listen I've told you before you don't listen I ask you questions you don't answer it doesn't matter Hereafter shall the Son of Man be on the right hand of the power of God. But one thing you will see, you will see me one day. Then said they all, Art thou then the Son of God? After saying this, are you saying that you're the Son of God? Are you the Son of God? And Jesus says, Yes, I am. Jesus in Luke chapter 22, verse 70, flat out says, yes, I am. Now, we see in translation, it says, ye say that I am. You say that I am. No, 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 no. When you take Luke 22, verse 70, ye say that I am. And you go back to the original Koine Greek. And you actually look at what it's actually saying in the original manuscripts. The wording, the phraseology of this is, in how it's pronounced properly, is Jesus says, like you said, I am. That's why in verse 71, 
When you take a look at Mark 14, verse 62 to 63, Matthew 26, verses 63 to 65, the reaction of the high priest. Because why else would the high priest then take his, his tunic, take his clothes, and tear his clothes and shout, this is blasphemy? Why would the high priest rent his clothes and shout, this is blasphemy, if Jesus did not claim deity? So with, compared with the original Koine Greek, the proper phrase here, comparing with the reaction of the high priest, Jesus is literally claiming to be ego emi, which is the Greek translation of I am, which is the almighty God. Jesus in Luke 22 verse 70 flat out claims to be the I am of God right in the temple in front of all the priests. Jesus flat out claims to be I am the almighty God. And the high priest says, this is blasphemy. In verse 71, and they said, we need, what need we any further witness? For we ourselves have heard of his own mouth. They think they got him. Because according to, uh, to uh, Mosaic law, any individual claiming to be God deserves to die the death of a blasphemer. Now, according to Jewish law, such an execution is carried out by stoning. An individual who blasphemes is to immediately be dragged out of the city and stoned to death. But we got a problem. Because the prophecy is that he would die by crucifixion. They pierced my hands and my feet. They don't really do that in stoning. They take big stones and they slam them on you and crush your bones and crush you to death with the stones. Uh, he didn't die by that. He died by crucifixion. So you also see by the prophecies then that the Christ Messiah could not have come before the Roman occupation. So we see that even by the very prophecy of the Christ Messiah being uh, being crucified, having his hands pierced through and all this, that that was that in of itself is unique because that is not something that the Jews did. So therefore, that signified something non-Jewish, so the Gentiles would have a hand in this. So these prophecies of the Christ Messiah's execution, his death, is also a foretelling of the Roman occupation of Israel. Because the Romans, the Romans executed with crucifixion. No one else did. It, it was a Roman thing. So that's interesting. So right here, so therefore, as the Jews then also did not have authority of execution, the Jews could not put people to death. They were not allowed by Roman law that the execution was only allowed by the Romans. So if, there, so if someone had committed a crime or done something and they deserved death, you had to take it up before the Romans. That's Isaiah 53. He was taken from prison and from judgment. So he was arrested and imprisoned in, 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 uh, in uh, Caiaphas's personal prison cell. And then he was hauled up before the Sanhedrin. And then he was taken from prison to the judgment seat of Pontius Pilate. 
See how it all comes to the details, the specifics, exactly like it says, exactly like it says. Luke 22. So there you go, folks. That's Luke chapter 22. We just wrapped that up. I hope that that's been a help and a comfort and an encouragement. I hope this has been eye-opening and helping and enlightening to you. If you have any comments, questions, issues, insights on this, please, by all means, go ahead, ask away. Be glad to hear from you. Um, so yeah, so again, I'll be back again tomorrow, and we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 23. And then again on Christmas Eve on the 24th, we're going to be doing the final chapter of the Gospel of Luke. I hope you'll join in with us on that one as we work our way and finish the Gospel of Luke this year. And in the, in the coming in the new year, and uh, Lord willing, January 2nd, we'll be starting a new Bible study. So I hope you'll be joining on that. So there you go. So that's Luke chapter 22. A lot of information. It was a big one. Uh, tons of information there. So I hope this has been a help and a comfort and encouragement to you. It, please make sure to give this a like. There's a thumbs up. Make sure you subscribe. Hit notification bell icon so you know when we put up new videos and check out all our other videos. we got tons of other goodies and content and things for us to, to look at and studies on different topics and debates and, and Bible studies, as well as check out our website, christiancoffeetime.ca. We've got links to all our other platforms and tons of other goodies as well. So there we go. So that wraps up and finishes our study on the Gospel of Luke chapter 22. And God bless you folks. God bless all those who love our Lord God, Jesus Christ. God bless all those who love his holy word. Hope to see you again. And as always, if I don't see you again, Merry Christmas, Happy New Year, and I'll see you in the sky. God bless.